and welcome to Beneath the Subsurface, a podcast that explores the intersection of geoscience and technology. From the Software Development Department here at TGS, I'm your host, Erica Conadera. For our fourth episode, we'll welcome a very special guest speaker who offers a uniquely broad perspective on the topic of seafloor mapping. We'll learn about the technology of multi-beam surveys, why underwater oil seeps are the basis of life as we know it, and how the answer to the age-old question of which came first, the chicken or the egg, is the sun. I'm here today with Duncan Bate, um, our Director of Projects for the U.S. and Gulf of Mexico. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Duncan? Sure, yeah, thanks. Um, I basically look after the development of all new projects for TGS in the in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I'm here today because uh, a few years ago we worked on a multi-beam seep hunting project in the Gulf of Mexico, so I can share some of my experiences and having worked on that project. Awesome. And then we have our special guest star, Dan Orange. He is a geologist and geophysicist with Oro Negro Exploration. Hi, Dan. Good morning. Would you like to introduce yourself briefly for us? Oh, sure. Um, let's see. I grew up in New England, Texas. So I went to junior high school just a few miles from where we're recording this. Uh, but I did go to MIT where I got my bachelor's and master's degree in geology. Then went out to UC Santa Cruz to do my PhD. And my PhD had field work both onshore and offshore. And it involved seeps. So we'll, we'll come back to that. And also theoretical work as well. Uh, had a short gig at Stanford and taught at Cal State Monterey Bay and spent five years at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, again, pursuing seeps. I left Mbari and started working with the oil patch in 1997. And it was early days in the oil industry pushing off the shelf and heading toward deep water. And seeps were both a bug and a feature. So we started applying seep science to the oil industry and have been doing that for, oh, now 21, 22 years. Now, the entire time that I was at Ambari and, uh, and working with the oil patch and, in fact, uh, ongoing, uh, I do research for the U.S. Navy through the Office of Naval Research. It started out involving seeps and canyon formation, and it's evolved into multi-beam seafloor mapping and acoustics, and that continues so in the oil patch, I was with AOA Geophysics. We formed a company, AGO, to commercialize controlled source EM. I sold that to Schlumberger. And then we formed an oil company, uh, Black Gold Energy, uh, that would use seeps as a way to uh, go into oil exploration. And we sold that to NICO. Uh, since leaving Black Gold uh, with Oro Negro, we've been teaming with TGS since 2014, so now going on five years. Mapping the seafloor, I think we just passed one and a quarter million square kilometers mapping with TGS as we map the seafloor and sample seeps uh, pretty much around the world for exploration. Awesome. So let's begin our discussion today with what is a seep, if you can elucidate that for us. So a, a seep is just what it sounds like. It's, it's a place on the Earth's surface where something leaks out from beneath. And in our case, it's oil and gas. Now, seeps have been around since the dawn of humanity. The seeps are referenced in the Bible and in, in multiple locations. Uh, seeps were used by the ancient Phoenicians to uh, do repairs on ships. They were used as medicines and, and such. And in oil exploration, seeps have been used 
to figure out where to look for oil since the beginning of the oil age. Uh, in fact, you know, there seeps in, in, in uh, Pennsylvania near Titusville where Colonel Drake drilled his first well. There, Exxon uh, had a group of, of people that they called the Rover Boys that went around the world after World War II looking for places on the Earth's surface that had big structures and oil seeps. Because when you have a seep at the seafloor or, or on the Earth's surface with oil and gas, you know that you had organic matter that's been cooked the right amount and that's formed uh, hydrocarbons, and it's migrating. And all those things are important to finding you know, economic quantities of oil and gas. So seeps have been used on, the, on, on land since the beginning of, uh, of uh, oil and gas exploration, but it wasn't until the 1990s that seeps began to affect how we explore offshore. So that's, seeps go back to, since the dawn of humanity. They were used in oil exploration from the earliest days, the 1870s and 80s onward, but they've been used offshore now since the mid-1990s. So that's, that's kind of, that seeps in context, but... It's actually the, the way I like to think about it, it's the bit missing from the what is geology 101 that every everyone in the oil and gas industry has to know. They always show a, a source rock, um, a migration to a trap and a seal, um, but that actually misses part of the story. Almost every basin in the world has leakage from that trap, either either directly from the source rock or from the trap. It either fills to the spill point or it just misses the trap. Those hydrocarbons typically make their way to the surface at some point. Um, at and some when point, they do, and somewhere, and somewhere, the trick when is they do, Yeah, that's the seep, <laughs> and that's what we're interested in finding. As Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> discovered. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I, was, exactly. I was going to include that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he was uh, out hunting for some food, and shooting, uh, and up from the ground came a bubbling crude. That's it. Oil, that is. Black gold. <laughs> Texas tea. That's right. <laughs> so that's that's seep science. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to is we're going to talk about seep communities offshore, because what I hope to be able to you know kind of convince you of is if oil and gas leak out of the seafloor, a seep community can form. Okay. Then we're going to talk about this this thing called multi beam, which is a um, which is a technique for mapping the seafloor. Because where you get a seep community, it affects the acoustic properties of the seafloor. And if we change the acoustic properties of the seafloor or the shape of the seafloor with, with this mapping tool, we can, we can identify a potential seep community. And then we can go sample that. And if we can sample it, we can analyze the geochemistry. And the geochemistry will tell us whether or not we had oil or gas or both. And then that can be in, and we can use it in all sorts of other ways, but that's where we're going to go to today. So that's kind of, that's kind of a map of, of, of our discussion today. Cool. Okay. So as Duncan said, uh, most of the world, uh, he t- Duncan talked about how in a, in a, if we have a, a, an oil basin or a gas basin with charge, there's going to be some leakage somewhere. And so it, the trick is to find that, Okay. And so uh, we, could, we could look at any, any basin in the world and we can look at where wells have been drilled and we can, we can look at where seeps leak out of the surface naturally and there's a, there's a correlation. Like, for example, L.A. is a prolific hydrocarbon basin. 
okay? And it has the La Brea tar pits, one of the most charismatic seeps on earth because you got saber-toothed tigers bubbling out. It's now, literally a tourist attraction. It, right yeah. there on Wilshire Boulevard, okay? And it's 100 meters long by 50 meters wide. So 100 yards long, 50 yards wide. And it, that is an oil seep on, on the earth's surface in L.A., okay? Now, it's important to mention that they're not all as big as that. No, now, sometimes it, they're smaller. It could just literally be a patch of oil staining in the sand. Really? Um, that's little? Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, or it just... An area where there's a cliff face with something draining out of it, or it, you know, it could be really, really small, which is easy to find onshore. You know, you send the rover boys out there, like you mentioned, um, and you know, enough geologists working on the ground, they're going to find these things eventually. Um, but the challenge, which we've been working on with with the guys from one for the last few years now, is finding these things offshore. So let's let's turn the clock back to 1977. Okay. Alvin, a submarine, a submersible with three people in it, went down on a, a mid-ocean ridge near the Galapagos Islands. And what they found, uh, they, and they were geologists going down to map where the oceanic crust is created, but what they found was this crazy community, this incredible oasis of life with tube worms and these giant columns with a, what looked like black smoke spewing into the into the ocean and so what they found are what we now call black smokers or hot vents and what what was so shocking is the bottom of the ocean is is it's a desert there's no light there's very little oxygen there's not a lot of primary food energy so what was this incredible oasis of life doing thousands of meters down on, on in, near the Galapagos Island, well, it turns out that the base of the food chain for those hot vents are sulfide-rich fluids, which are coming spewing out of the earth, and they fuel a chemically-based uh, community that thrives there and is an oasis there because there's so much energy concentrated in those hot sulfide-rich fluids that it can support these chemically-based life forms. So that's 1977. In 1985, in the same summer, chemically-based life forms, but based on ambient temperature water, not hot water, were found in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Oregon that same summer, 1985. In the Gulf of Mexico, the base of the food chain, what was fueling this chemical energy, was hydrocarbons, oil and gas. And off the coast of Oregon, what was fueling it was hydrogen sulfide. So this is 1985. Uh, the year I graduated college. And so I started graduate school in 1986, and part of my research was working with the group that was trying to figure out the plumbing that was bringing these chemically rich fluids up to the Earth's surface that were feeding this brand new community of life, you know, uh, what we now call cold seeps. So uh, we, you know, depending on what you had for breakfast today, you know, eggs or pancakes or you had your coffee, all the energy that we've got coursing through our veins right now is based upon photosynthesis. We're either eating plants that got their energy from sunlight or we're eating eggs that came from chickens that eat the plants that can, where the energy came from sunlight. Everything in our world up here is based upon photosynthesis. So, but... The seep communities, the hot vents and the black smokers and the cold seeps, the base 
of the food pyramid is chemical energy. So they're called chemosynthetic communities or chemoautotrophic because the bacteria get their trophic energy, the energy that they need to live from chemicals. And so the bacteria utilize the chemicals and organisms have evolved to host these bacteria inside their bodies. And the bacteria metabolize the chemical energy to produce uh, the enzymes that these larger organisms need to live. So these large organisms can include clams, uh, tube worms, uh, the actual bacteria themselves. Uh, but so the, the, the kind of how does this work is, is, is let's get, because if we understand how seeps work and we know that seeps can be based upon oil and gas seepage, then you'll understand why we're using these seeps to go out and, and, and impact uh, oil and gas exploration. So the, the, at the bottom of the ocean, we have a little bit of oxygen. But as we go down into the sediments uh, below the surface, we, we consume all that oxygen and we get to what's called the redox boundary to where we go from sulfate above it to hydrogen sulfide below it. And so below this redox boundary, we can have methane, we can have oil. Uh, but above that redox boundary, the methane will oxidize and the oil will be biodegraded and eaten by critters and whatnot. Now, living at that boundary are bacteria who metabolize these compounds and, and that's where they get the energy they need to live. These back, okay, so now, now kind of turn the clock even farther back. Before the earth had an oxygen atmosphere, the the only way that organisms got energy to live was from chemicals. Okay, so before we had algae and we created this oxygen atmosphere that we breathe, billions of years ago, the organisms that lived on Earth were chemosynthetic. So these bacteria survive today and they live everywhere where we cross this, this redox boundary. Okay, so they're, they're actually they're archaea which are some of the most primitive forms of bacteria. And I'm, I'm not a biologist, so I can't tell you how many billions of years ago they, they, they formed, but they're, they're ancient, and they're living down there. So they haven't changed since then? They're basically nope. the same? Wow. They figured out a way to get energy to survive. It works. Why change it? <laughs> <laughs> if you're an archaea, right? So they're living down there at that redox boundary. Now, if we have seepage, seepage is the flow of liquids, you actually lift that redox boundary, and if you have enough seepage, you can lift that boundary right to the sediment water interface. If you step in a pond and you smell that, that, hydrogen, that sulfide, that rotten egg smell, your foot has gone through the redox boundary, okay? And you've disturbed some archaea down there, and they, they get nudged aside. They'll go find someplace else. Okay, so with seepage, we lift the redox boundary to the sediment water interface and, and the bacteria are there and they're ready to utilize the reduced fluids as their source of energy. And so you can see them. We, we, have, we have pictures. You can, you can do an do a, a internet search and say, you know, bacteria, chemosynthetic bacteria images and look at, look at photos of them. They, it, they look like, okay, when you put the guacamole in the back of the fridge and you forget it for three weeks and you open it up, that's what they look like. It's that fuzzy, it's this fuzzy mat of bacteria. And those are the bacteria that are out there. They're metabolizing these fluids, okay? Now, in the process of metabolizing these fluids, pro they produce, the bacteria produce enzymes like ATP. And I wish my partner, John Decker, was here because he would correct me. I think it's adenase triphosphate. 
And it's an enzyme that your body produces and sends out to, to basically transmit chemical energy, okay? Now, at some point in geologic time, and I'll, and I'll actually put a number on this in a second, larger fauna, like clams and tube worms, uh, evolved to take advantage of the fact that the bacteria are producing energy, and so they then evolved to use the bacteria within themselves to create the energy that they need to live, okay? So uh, what happens is these seep fauna produce larvae. The, the larvae go into, you know, kind of a dormant stage, and they're flowing around the ocean. And if they sense a seep, okay, they settle down and they start to grow. And, as, and then they, 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 the bacteria uh, become part of them. The, the clams, you open a clam, and the bacteria live in the gills, okay? And so they grow. And, and so these clams and tube worms start to grow, and they form a community, okay? So the, a clam, what a clam does, these clams, they stick their foot into the, se- into the sediment, and they absorb the reduced fluids into their circulation system. They bring that, that circulating fluid to their gills, where the bacteria then metabolize these reduced fluids, and uh, send the enzymes out to the the tissues of the clam so it can grow. So this clam does not filter feed like every other clam on the planet. The tube worms that host these bacteria in them don't filter feed. So the base of the food chain is chemosynthetic, but the megafauna themselves uh, don't get their energy directly from methane or hydrogen sulfide. They get their energy from the bacteria, which... And the bacteria, you know, the bacteria are happy that they live anywhere. But sitting here in a clam, they 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 get the reduced fluids they need to live, and they grow. Now, what's what's cool for us as as seep hunters is different species have evolved to kind of reflect different types of f- fluids. So if you know a little bit about seep biology, when you pick up like a, a bathymodiolus uh, muscle, you go, oh, there could be oil here, okay? Because that particular muscle is found in association with, with oil seeps, okay? So the, 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 we won't go too far down that path, but they're, they're different organisms. The important thing is that these communities uh, form, again, an oasis of life, a high concentration of life where we have a seep. Now, the oldest seep community that I'm aware of is Devonian. So that's between 420 and 360 million years. It's found in the high Atlas Mountains of Morocco. And that seep community, a fossil seep community, includes the same types of clams and tube worms that we find today. Okay? But they're also found with orthogenic carbonate, okay, which is like limestone. And so... And that limestone encases this fossil seep community and has preserved it for hundreds of millions of years. So where does limestone come from? So remember we've got methane, CH4, in, our, uh, in, our, in some of our seep fluids. Well, if that's oxidized by bacteria, because they're going to get energy from the methane, they produce bicarbonate which is HCO3, has a negative charge on it. And that bicarbonate... Uh, if it sees calcium, they, f- they, they like each other, and so they'll form calcium carbonate, limestone. And since seawater is everywhere saturated with calcium, if we have um, natural gas seep, the bacteria will oxidize the natural gas, and the bicarbonate will grab the calcium to form this cement. 
Now, deep enough in the ocean, it actually is, uh, is acidic enough that, that cement will start to dissolve. So we just have this, we have a factory of, of bacteria. It might be dissolving some places, but most of the places we look, uh, the, the carbonate doesn't dissolve. So we've got clams, tube worms, we've got limestone, orthogenic carbonate, and if the pressure and temperature are in the right field, that methane can also form this really cool substance called gas hydrate. And gas hydrate, it's a clathrate. The, 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 it's, it's a combination of water and methane where the water forms an ice-like cage and the methane sits in that cage. And so you can light this on fire in your hand and the gas will burn, a nice yellow flame will go up from your hand, and the cage will melt, the ice melts, so you get cold water on your hand with flames going up. It's, it's cool stuff. Did you bring one of these to show us today? <laughs> I, the, the pressure and temperature in this room are not, are, are not uh, methane's not in equilibrium. You need, ah. high, you need high pressure, uh, moderately high pressure, and you need very low temperatures. So... Uh, if we had neither a common in Houston, no, <laughs> and we wouldn't be terribly comfortable if if that was what it was like here in this room. But the the important thing for us now, as we think about seep science and in seep hunting, is that this this limestone cement, the orthogenic carbonate, the gas hydrate, the shells of a clam, okay, are all harder, okay, harder. I will knock on the table. They're harder than mud. So the seafloor, most, most of the world's ocean is gray-green mud and ooze from all sorts of sediment and diatoms and plankton raining down onto the ocean floor. So most of the world's ocean is, is kind of just muddy, sandy, uh, some places, but sediment. It's where you get these seep communities that now we've, we've formed a spot that's, re- that's harder and rougher than the area around it. And that's our target when we uh, deploy technologies to go out and, and look at seeps. So, so hot smokers, hot, hot vents were discovered in 1977. Cold seeps were discovered in 1985 and were found to be associated uh, in the Gulf of Mexico with oil and gas seepage. That's 1985. Uh, those were discovered with, with human beings in, a sub, in submersibles. Later, uh, we deployed robotic submersibles to go look at seeps, ROVs. And uh, even later, we developed tools to go sample seeps without needing to have eyes on the bottom. And we'll come, and talk, we'll come back and talk about that later. But for kind of recap, a seep is a place where something is leaking out of the Earth's surface. Uh, when we talk about seeps, we're talking about uh, offshore seepage of oil and gas that supports this profusion of chemically-based life forms, as well as these precipitates, uh, the orthogenic carbonate limestone and gas hydrate. And the important thing is they change the acoustic properties of the seafloor. Yeah, I think the key thing is that you've gone from having um, seeps onshore, which are relatively easy to walk up to and see, but hard to find, to seeps offshore, which are impossible to walk up to or very difficult you need a a submersible to do it but because of this um uh, chemosynthetic communities that build up around it and our knowledge of that 
it now gives us something to look for geophysically. So we can apply some geophysics, which we'll get on to talk about next in terms of the multi-beam, um, to actually hunt for these things in a very cost-effective way and a very fast manner. So we can cover, as Dan said right at the start, hundreds of thousands of square kilometers, even over a million now, um, in a, in a cost-effective, timely manner and identify these seeps from the sea surface. Now, fishermen know where <laughs> seeps are because th- all of this limestone uh, provides places for fish to leave their larvae where they might live. They call them refugia. It's a, it's a place where you know, lots of little fish and where you have lots of little fish, you have lots of big fish. And since we're also increasing this primary productivity, you, you, get, you get profusions of fish around seep communities. So we've found orthogenic carbonate in the front yards of fishermen in areas where, that we've gone to study seeps. And if you chip a little bit off it, uh, you can go and analyze it in the lab. Or if you can get somebody who fishes for a living to tell you their spots. And that involves convincing them that you're not going to steal their spots and you're not going to tell everybody where their spots are. But if you go into a frontier area, if you can get somebody who fishes for a living to talk to you, you might have some ideas of where to go look for them. So kind of one other point that I wanted to make here about seeps is, remember I talked about how uh, a seep organism creates kind of a larva, which is dormant and it's kind of flowing through the world's ocean looking for a seep community doing some back of the envelope calculations if if a larva can survive for about a month okay and you have a one knot current that larva can move about 1300 kilometers in a month which is about the length of the island of java and it might be about the length of the state of california so if you think now so if you think about that then all you need is a seep community somewhere to be sending out larvae, most of which, of course, are never going to survive. And then if we get a seep somewhere else, the odds are that there's going to be a larva bouncing along the seafloor that's going to see that and start growing. So for us as explorationists, the, the important thing is if there's a seep, there's a pretty good chance that, that a seep community will start to form. Uh, if the seepage lasts long enough, uh, it will form a, a community you know, might be large, might be medium-sized, but it changes the acoustic properties of the seafloor. Okay? So that, remember, we're going to talk about seeps, what they, what, what's a seep, and that it, how it's related to hydrocarbon uh, seepage out of the or, or natural gas, oil, you know, reduced fluids, what we were going to talk about. And now we're going to talk about how offshore we use this technology called multi-beam to go and find them. Okay? So back in, the, back in the Cold War, the Air Force came up with a tool to map the former Soviet Union called synthetic aperture radar. And when the Navy saw the, the Air Force's maps, they said, we want a map of the seafloor. And at the time, you know, if you remember your World War II movies, the submarine sends out a ping, somebody's listening on, 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 their, on their headphones, and... Uh, and the ping comes back, and the amount of time that it took for the ping to go out and the ping to come back is how deep the water is, if you know the, the speed of sound in, in water. But that's, that's just one point directly beneath you. That's not good enough to get a detailed map of the seafloor. So uh, dr- driven by these Cold War needs, the Navy contracted a company called General Instruments to develop a tool to map the seafloor, and they develop what's called SAS, the Sonar Array Sounding System, which we now call multi-beam. 
uh, in the 1960s. Uh, it was unveiled to the world during a set of uh, submersible dives to the Mid-Ocean Ridge, I believe in 1975, as part of the famous project. And the geoscientists looked at that map, and it was a contour map of the Mid-Ocean Ridge, and they said, holy smokes, what's that? Where'd that come from? And the Navy said, well, we kind of developed a new technology. And it was first commercialized in 1977, the same year hot smokers were discovered on the world's oceans. And it has been continuously developed since then. Uh, and in about the 1990s, it got resolute enough for, for us to take this, this kind of seep, seep hunting uh, science and take it, uh, take it offshore. So until then, 1980s, we were deploying submersibles. We were going down and looking at them. We had very crude maps. Uh, we had some side scan that showed us a little bit about uh, the acoustic properties of the seafloor. But... It wasn't until the mid-1990s that we realized that with these tools, these seafloor mapping tools that, that had acoustic uh, analyzing techniques, that we could identify areas that were harder and rougher and had a different shape uh, that allowed us to, to start, uh, instead of just driving around and, and uh, we're finding one by, by uh, luck or chance, actually saying, huh, there's an there's a interesting acoustic signature over there. Let's go take a look at it. And deploying submersibles and ROVs and realizing that, yes, we had tools that could uh, be used to, to map the seafloor and identify seeps. And driven by their own interests, the Navy, the U.S. Navy was very interested in these and uh, was an was a early early funder of SEEP science, and, and they've continued with it, as well as academic institutions around the world that got very interested in SEEP communities. And in fact, NASA. NASA is really interested in SEEP communities because they're chemically-based life forms in what are basically extreme environments. And so if NASA wants to figure out what life is going to look like on a different planet, uh, or a different moon on a, or surround, and a different planet that doesn't have an oxygen atmosphere, here's, here's a, a laboratory on Earth that, that they can use. So NASA has been funding uh, SEEP science uh, as well. So multi-beam, what is it and how does it apply to, to, to hunting SEEPs? So multi-beam, which is this technology that was developed by, funded by the, the Navy in the 1960s and commercialized in the 70s, uses two acoustic arrays of transducers. Uh, one array is mounted parallel to the length of a ship and when you fire off all those transducers, it sends out a ping. And the longer the array is, the narrower the beam. This is, it's, these are, that's how antennas work. So that, that long array sends out a ping, which, which is narrow along track and is shaped kind of like a saucer. So if you can imagine two dinner plates put together, uh, that's what this uh, ping of energy looks like, and that's what we call the transmit beam. So then if you listen to the seafloor with an array that's perpendicular to the transmit array, we are now listening to an area that's, that's narrow across track, okay, and it's long, elongate along track. So we've got this narrow transmit beam in one direction that's, that's now perpendicular to the ship, and we've got the narrow receive beam that's parallel to the ship, and where those two intersect is what we call a beam. And so with, with lots of different uh, transducers mounted uh, perpendicular to the ship, we can listen from all the way out to the port, about 65 degrees, 
down below the ship and all the way over to starboard, again, about 65 degrees, and we have lots of beams. So right now, the system that we're using uh, on our project has 455 beams across track. So every time we send out a ping, we insonify the seafloor on on these 455 beams. And as we go along, we send out another ping and another ping, and we're basically, we're painting the seafloor. It's, it's like mowing the lawn with a big lawnmower or using a Zamboni to drive around an ice rink. You can just think of it as, as the ship goes along, we are insonifying and listening to a wide patch of seafloor. And we typically map uh, about a five kilometer, about a three mile uh, wide swath. And we send out a ping every six or 10 seconds. Depends how, you know, depends on the water depth. And so we're able to map 1,000 or 2,000 square kilometers a day with this technique, this multi-beam technique. Since a lot of our podcast listeners might be familiar with seismic, as that's probably the biggest percentage of the, the geophysical industry, this is not too different. Uh, it's an acoustic-based technique. Um, I guess the main differences are we're li- working in a different um, frequency um, bandwidth, um, and also that we have both the receiver and the transmitter both mounted on the same boat. So we're not dealing with a, a streamer out the back of a boat. Um, we have transmitter and receiver both hole mounted uh, but after that it's all pretty similar to seismic we go backwards and forwards um, either in 2d lines or in a in a 3d grid and we build up a picture um, now because of the frequencies we're working with we don't penetrate very deep into the seafloor um, but as, as we mentioned we're interested in seeing those seep communities on the seafloor so that's why we this, this is the perfect technology for for that application can you talk a little bit about the post-processing that's involved with multi-beam well, let me, Erica. Great question. Let me let me come back to that sure. later because I want to I want to pick up on on what Duncan talked about and and add one very important wrinkle. So first of all, absolutely correct. The frequencies are different. Uh, in seismic, we're down in the hertz to tens of hertz, and in multi beam, we're in the tens of kilohertz, and in very shallow water, maybe even over higher than hundred kilohertz. In seismic, we have air guns that send that radiate 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 out energy, and we we design the array so that we get most of the energy in the direction that we're looking. With multi beam, we have a narrow. Remember, it's one degree wide. Here, if you, if you got kids, see if anybody still has a protractor anymore. Grab <laughs> a protractor and look at how wide one degree is. It's very narrow. There's probably an iPhone app for that. <laughs> see what one used to look like. But but with with seismic, the air gun sends out uh, 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 energy. And we listen to the reflected energy out on the streamer back behind the ship or on a, on, on a node somewhere else. It's reflected energy. With multi-beam, the energy goes out and it interacts with the seafloor and the shallow subsurface. And some, mo- most of it gets reflected away. And we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't hear that. It, but some of it actually comes back in the same direction that the sound went out. And we call that backscatter. So backscatter energy comes back to you, and it's that backscatter that uh, can increase when we have hard and rough material either on the seafloor or buried below the seafloor. So the way that we process it is, since we know the time of length, the time of path on how long it took to get out, hit the seafloor, and come back, uh, you can correct for path length. Uh, 
energy radiates outward in a spherical pattern, so we correct for spherical spreading. Uh, we know the angle that it hit the seafloor, so we correct for angle of insonification. And then the next and most important things are where was the ship when the pulse went out and where is the ship when the pulse comes back, including what's the orientation of the ship. So we need to know the location, the position of the ship in X, Y, and Z to centimeters, and we need to know the orientation of the ship to tenths of a degree or better on both the, the transmit and the receive. But the key thing is, uh, if we know that path length and the spherical spreading, and we correct for all of that, and we get a response that's much greater than we expected, we get higher backscatter energy. And it's, it's those clams, tube worms, orthogenic carbonate, gas hydrate, that can increase the hardness and the roughness of the seafloor that kick back the backscatter energy, okay? N now, what happens if the oil and gas uh, or the reduced fluids, if they shut off? Well, I'm sorry to say for the clams and the tube worms that they will eventually die. The bacteria will still live at that redox boundary as it settles back below the sediment. And then when we pile some sediment on top of that dead seep community, it's still there. The shells are there. The, the carbonate's still there. So with, with multi-beam, the, the frequencies we use, 12 and 30 kilohertz, penetrate between 2, 3, 10 meters or so into the sediment. So if you shut off the seepage and bury that seep community, they're still there. And if we can sample that below that redox boundary at that location, chances are we're going to get uh, oil or gas in, in our sample. And in fact, we encounter live seep communities very, 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 very rarely, you know, kind of one in a thousand. But uh, we, f we encounter seep fauna down in our sample cores, which we'll talk about later, uh, much more frequently, and uh, and we we find hydrocarbons. We are very successful at finding hydroca hydrocarbons, and the key thing is we're using seep science to go look in in basins or extend outboard from basins in areas where there may be no known oil or gas production, and that's why the, the seeps are useful. So multi-beam, uh, unlike uh, Seismic, we got to collect the data, then we got we to do all sorts of processing. It takes a while to, to crank the computers and whatnot. Multi-beam, we can, we can look at it as it comes in, and we can see the backscatter strength. We can see what the swath that it's mapping, every ping, every six seconds. And it takes, about, it takes less than a day to process a day's worth of multi-beam. So wow. when our ships are out there working... Every morning when we get the, the daily report from the ship, we see another 1,000 or 2,000 square kilometers of data that were mapped just the previous day. So it's for, for, for those who, who can't wait, it's, it's really satisfying. But for those of us who are trying to accelerate projects, it's great because when the data come off the ship, they're already processed, we can start picking targets and we can be out there you know, in, in weeks sampling. So that's so multi-beam, uh, it's, it's bathymetry, it's backscatter, but we're also imaging the water column. So if there's a, a gas plume uh, coming out of the seafloor naturally, we can see that gas plume and, and uh, so that we can see the water column, we can see the seafloor, the bathymetry, and the backscatter. 
Uh, Erica, you asked you know, about the processing, and I talked about how we have to know the position and the orientation of the ship. That means that we have to survey in using a laser theodolite. We have to survey in every component of the system on the ship to you know, fractions of a millimeter. Uh, and we drive the surveyors nuts because we are we are more <laughs> demanding than uh, the the BMW plant in South Carolina, and 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 they <laughs> point that out to us every time. Yes, we're more demanding, but if they have a problem with a with a robot in the BMW plant, they can go out and survey it again. Once we put this ship in the water, I can't go survey the array that's that's now welded to the bottom of the ship. It's there. And so that's why we make them do three replicate surveys and do loop ties and convince us that we've got an incredibly accurate and precise uh, system. So that's, we, we survey the ship. We use, well, we go back and we go and we, we check their math and we make sure all the numbers are entered into the system correctly. Uh, we, we measure the water column every day so that we have the best velocity data that we use to correct the, that position. Uh, we, we measure the salinity in the water column because it affects how energy is absorbed. It's called the absorption coefficient. Mm-hmm. We measure the acoustic properties of the ship so we understand maybe we need to turn off the starboard side pump in order to get better multi-beam data. And we, we evaluate every component of the ship. Some, sometimes they'll have, they'll have, you know, the the waste unit was was mounted onto the onto the deck of the ship, and nobody thought about putting uh, a rubber bushing between that unit and the hull to isolate the sound. And it just so happens it's at 12 kilohertz, and so it swamps your acoustic energy, or it degrades our data quality, hmm. because it's all about data quality, so that we can find these small, interesting, high backscatter targets. Uh, we we polish the hull. We send divers down every eight weeks or 12 weeks or 16 weeks because you get biofouling. You get, you get these barnacles growing, and a barnacle in between your acoustic array and the seafloor is going to affect the data. So we send uh, divers down to go scrape the hull and scrape the prop. Uh, uh, so it's probably worth mentioning that this is the same type of multi-beam uh, or multi-beam data is the same data that is used in other parts of the oil and gas industry as well. So, I mean, any pipeline that's ever been laid in the last few decades has had a multi-beam survey before it. Any bit of marine infrastructure that an oil and gas company wants to put in the Gulf of Mexico, certainly you have to have a multi-beam survey ahead of time. Uh, what's different here is that we're we're trying to cover big areas and we're trying to get a very specific resolution. So maybe it's worth talking a bit about that, Dan, what we're actually trying to achieve in terms of the resolution to actually find seeps. You got it. So we, we, can, we can control the resolution because we can control how wide a swath we go and how fast we go. So... Uh, if you're really interested in, if you want to do a, a, a site survey and you want to get incredibly detailed data of a, of a three kilometer by three kilometer square, you could deploy an autonomous underwater vehicle or an ROV and get very, very, very resolute, like smaller than half a meter bin size. Uh, for what we do, where our goal is exploration, the trade-off is between do I want more resolute data or do I want more data? And it, 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 that, that is a trade-off, and it's something that, that we struggle with. And we think that the sweet spot is mapping that five-kilometer swath, three-mile wide swath, at about, oh, eight to ten knots. So 
what's that, about 16 kilometers an hour. That gets us 1,000 to 2,000 square kilometers a day. And by acquiring data in that manner, we get a 15-meter bathymetric bin independent of water depth. And our backscatter, since we subsample that bathymetric bin for the backscatter, we can get a 5-meter backscatter pixel. So now if I, have four, if I have four adjacent pixels, you know, shaped like a square, that's a 10 meter by 10 meter spot on the seafloor, slightly larger than, than this room, we could, you could see that. Now you might need a couple of more to be larger than that so to have a target actually stand out. Uh, and that's about how accurate our sampling is with the core barrel. So uh, the, the, the long answer to your question is about a 15 meter bathymetric bin and a five meter backscatter pixel is what we're currently doing for our exploration work. Now, we pay attention to what's going on in the navigation and the positioning world because it affects our data quality. So the higher the quality of, of our navigation, the higher the quality of uh, our data on the seafloor. So uh, about a decade ago, the world's airlines asked if they could fly their airplanes closer together, and the FAA responded and said, not unless you improve GPS. And so, sponsored by the world's airlines, uh, they set up ground stations all in, in, the, in the most heavily traveled parts of the world that improve the GPS signal by having in independent orbital corrections. What that means is for us working offshore, we take advantage of it. It's called wide area augmentation. And uh, using this system, which is now, it's, a, it's an add-on for a GPS receiver, we're able to get six centimeter accuracy of a ship that's out there in the ocean that's surveying. So that's six centimeters. What's that, about two and a half inches. And for those of us who grew up with Loran and very, you know, where you were lucky if you knew where you were to within a you know, quarter of a mile, uh, it's, it's just astonishing to me that this box can produce data of that quality. But that flows through to the quality of the data that we get on our surveys, which flows through to our ability to find uh, targets. So I think... Uh, I've told you about subsampling the bathymetry for backscatter, and I've told, I've told you about the water column, and we've talked about the resolution. Um, I think we've, we've pretty much hit what multi-beam is. It's, it's a real-time, near real-time acquisition, high-frequency, narrow beam. Uh, we image the seafloor and the shallow subsurface, okay? Uh, and we use that to find anomalous backscatter targets. Well, let's talk about the water column a little bit more, Dan, because I know we've published some pictures and images from our surveys um, showing the water column anomalies. Um, the backscatter data uh, in the water column itself can actually help us find seeps. Um, the the right mixture of oil and gas coming out of a, an active seep and migrating up through the water column can actually be picked up on these multi-beam multi data also. Um, so that's a, a real direct hit that you've got to see and that it's actually still producing oil today. Right. So when, when gas and oil leak out of the seafloor, the gas bubble begins to expand as it comes up, just like it would in a, in a, in a carbonated beverage because there's less pressure. So that, that, get, that bubble is expanding. If there's oil present, the oil coats the outside of the bubble and actually protects it from dissolving into the water column. And so the presence of gas with a little bit of oil leaking out of the seafloor creates these bubbles that uh, are big enough to see with these 12 and 30 kilohertz systems. And so when we see a plume coming out of the seafloor, that's natural uh, seepage of gas, uh, possibly with a little bit of oil, and it provides a great target for us to go 
and, and, and hit. Now, those seeps are flowing into the water column, and the water column has currents, and the currents aren't the same from one day to the next and one week to the next. So if we image a seep a couple of different times, one day it'll be flowing in one direction, and the next time we see it flowing in a different direction, the area in common between the two is pointing us toward the, the, the origin point on the seafloor, and that's what, that's what we're going to target. And if you, if you hunt around, look for NOAA studies of, uh, of the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, uh, over Mississippi Canyon, near where the Deepwater Horizon uh, went down, because there are NOAA has published uh, images of the gas seeps in that area where the, where where there are natural oil and gas seeps leaking leaking out of the seafloor, and these natural seeps occur all over the world, okay, and they're bringing oil and gas into the water column. But remember, nature has basically provided. Uh, the cleanup tool, which is the bacteria. So where oil and gas uh, settle onto the seafloor, there are bacteria that will consume it. You don't want a lot of it in one place because then, then you've got you know, a real environmental disaster. But natural oil and gas seepage goes hand in hand with natural seep-consuming organisms that metabolize uh, these fluids. So uh, multi-beam seeps backscatter, okay, that I think we've we've talked about what the target looks like. Let's talk about how we go and and, and sample it. Yeah, and I think that's the the real key thing, um, particularly here in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, uh, we talked at the start about how um, using seeps can tell you whether a basin has hydrocarbons in it or not. Clearly, we're decades past the point of knowing whether there's oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so even in the deep water Gulf of Mexico, especially here on the U.S. side, um, we know that there's oil and gas. Um, so that information is 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 long gone. We don't we don't need an update on that anymore. Well, what we need to know is information about the type of oil, the age of the oil, the depositional environment that the oil was deposited in, and if we can actually get a sample from these seeps, then that's the sort of information that modern geochemistry can start to pull out for us. We've sat in the same meetings where the, the potential client companies have said, why are you, you going to map the deepest part of the Gulf of Mexico? There's no oil out there. And lo and behold, we found anomalous backscatter targets on uh, diapirs, which are areas, mounds out in the deepest parts of the Gulf of Mexico. And lo and behold... Uh, if you if you if you look at the data, you'd know that that statement was incorrect. There is oil and gas out there. In other parts of the world, we've had we've had companies say, "Oh, this part's all oil and this part's gas." Well, how do you know that? Well, because we've drilled for oil out here, and we don't think there's any oil once you get out there. And you don't know you don't know what you don't know until you go map it and sample it. And then you come back, you put the data on their desk, and they go, "Huh? Yeah." We were wrong. I guess there is oil out there. And, and in other parts of the world where, you know, we've done all our exploration close to land or in shallow water, we go out into the deepest part and nobody's ever drilled a well out there. So uh, you use the seep science to, go, to basically fill that in. So what, in order to make money exploring for oil, you had to have a, organic matter originally. It had to be, it had to be buried and cooked Okay, so you need temperature and pressure. Uh, you need time. It takes time to do that. Then it needs to migrate, okay, with the exception of unconventionals. We're not going to talk about unconventionals today. With the, ex- with the exception of unconventionals, the hydrocarbons have to migrate so that they're concentrated so that you can go 
can drill them and recover them, they, and they need to be in a reservoir, and it has to be sealed. And so when we find a seep, and all of that goes into what, what we talk about in oil exploration as the risk equation. Like, what's the probability of success? If you don't know whether you have uh, migration, you have maximum uncertainty, and that flows through into your, into your risk. Well, if we find a seep, uh, remember, we've proven that there was organic matter. We've proven that it was uh, buried and cooked for the right amount of time to create oil and gas, and that it's migrated. We can't tell you anything about reservoir or seal or timing, but we can, we can materially impact the risk equation by finding a, uh, a seep, okay? So, right, before you drill a well, wouldn't you like to know whether or not there's oil or gas in the neighborhood? Because a well can be a $100 million risk, okay? You'd, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to know? So, remember, when we started looking at seeps, 1977 for the hot vents, 85 for the cold vents, we used human beings in a submersible. Later, we shifted to using robotic submersibles where... Uh, human beings sit on a ship in a control room, operate the ROV with joysticks, and you watch the videos come through. Well, uh, those are great, but they're really expensive, and you can't look at much seafloor on any given day because you're limited to how fast you can move across the seafloor and how much you can look at. So if we survey 2,000 square kilometers in a day, we want to be able to evaluate that in less than... 20 years. We want to be able to evaluate that in, a, in, you know, in a similar length of time, a day or two. So what we've done is we've shifted toward using what's, what we, what's called a piston core, which, uh, which is a tw- six meter long, 20 foot long tube with about a thousand kilos on it, 2,000 pounds. And we lower it su- through the seafloor, operating it with a winch from a ship. And by putting a navigation beacon on that core, we can track it through the water column in real time. And if we have this high backscatter target on the seafloor, we can lower it through the water column. Once we're, we're about fit, we're within 50 meters, 150 feet of the seafloor, uh, we can see whether we're on target. And then we let it go. When, the pist- when, the, when the, it has a trigger weight on it, you can look this up, uh, p- how, do, how do piston cores work, that the core... Let's go, and it free falls that last little bit, and it penetrates the seafloor. You haul it back to the surface. Now, if it had gas hydrate in it, if it has oil in it, if it has gas in it, you can see it right away uh, when you pull the, the, the clear liner out of the core, and there it is. You, you know whether or not you've got success. Uh, for most cores, there's no visual evidence of hydrocarbons. We sample that, that, that core tube, uh, three different samples, uh, one of them, we take a sample into a into a into what we call a gas can and seal that, and then we put a couple of uh, hockey puck size chunks of sediment into Ziploc bags, and everything goes into the freezer, and you ship that back uh, from the next port call, and about a month later, you get a spreadsheet in your email uh, that says, "Oh, guess what." You found methane, ethane, propane, butane, and pentane, and look at this. You've got enough fluorescence that this is a guaranteed oil hit. So, uh, again, you think about the time. We map a couple thousand square kilometers a day. We map for a month. We'll look at the data for a month. We go out and core for a couple of weeks. And a month later, the geochemistry starts flowing in. So, real quick, uh, multi-beam, as we've, as we've discussed, is a way to get a detailed map of the seafloor, both the shape of it and the hardness and roughness, acoustic properties. So 
any company laying a fiber optic cable across the world's oceans is acquiring multi-beam data. Any uh, municipality that's worried about how deep their ports are and whether there's enough space for the ships to come in is acquiring multi-beam data. The U. Uh, the Corps of Engineers, who pays companies to dredge sand in the Mississippi River, has to have a before and after multi-beam uh, map. Uh, when uh, MH370 went down and uh, needed to be hunted for before they deployed the real high-resolution tools, they needed a map of the seafloor, and that was a part of the ocean that has had, had never been mapped in detail before. So. Most of the world's oceans have, ne- have never been mapped in the detail that we're mapping them. We're using the tool to go hunt seeps, but there are all sorts of other uses of, of that multi-beam technology. So um, what are we looking for? When, we, when, we, when we're looking for seeps, you know, what have, where have people found oil and gas leaking out of the seafloor? What does it look like? What are the targets? Well, if the gas burps out of the seafloor, it creates a pockmark. And those are targets. Uh, in many parts of the world, the Apennines of Italy, Azerbaijan, there are what we call mud volcanoes, where overpressured mud from deep down in the earth is uh, kind of spewing out gently, slowly, and continuously at the earth's surface. And lo and behold, it's bringing up oil and gas along with it. So mud volcanoes are known oil and gas seeps onshore. Of course, we're going to use them uh, offshore. Uh, Pockmark. We got any any place where we have a fault, you can create fracture permeability that might let oil and gas up. Faults can also seal, but a fault would be a good target. An anticline, a big fold that has uh, can have seeps coming out of the crest of it, similar to the the seeps that were discovered early in uh, late in the 1800s in the, in in the USA. Uh, we can have areas where. We have oil and gas leaking out of the seafloor, but it's not enough to change the shape of the seafloor, so we get high backscatter but no relief. Those, those are targets. So when we go out and we sample potential seep targets, we don't focus on only one type of target because that might only tell you one thing. So we spread our, our targets around on different target types, and we'll spread our targets around uh, an area, even if we, if we have more targets in one area than another area, we will spread our targets all the way around because the one thing that we've learned in decades of seep hunting is we're not as smart as we think we are. Nature always throws a curveball, and you should you should not think that you know know everything before you go into an area to analyze it, because you might you probably will find something that that startles you. And uh, you know, as someone who's been looking at seeps since 1986, I continue to find things that we've never seen before. Uh, like our recent projects in the Gulf of Mexico, we found two target types that we've never seen before. The nearest analog on Earth, on the surface, is called a pingo, which is when ice forms these really weird mounds up in the Arctic. And the one thing I can guarantee you that's not on the bottom of the world's ocean is an ice mound similar to what's formed in the Arctic, but, but it had that shape. So we went and analyzed it, and lo and behold, it told us something about the hydrocarbon system. So those are all different types of target types. So the, the, the core comes back, we send it to the lab, we get first the very, what we call the screening geochemistry, which is uh, light gases, methane through pentane. 
we look at how fluorescent it is because that'll tell you whether or not you, you have a chance of, of having a big oil hit. And we also look at the, what's called the chromatogram, which is a gas chromatography. And that tells us between about C15 and C36, C being the carbon length, so the, all your alkanes. And by looking at a chromatogram, a trained professional will look at that and say, oh, that's biodegraded oil or, oh, that's really fresh oil because really fresh oil all the N-alkane peaks get smaller as they get bigger, so it has a very, very distinctive shape. Or they can look at it and they can tell you, uh, you, can, you can figure out the depositional environment. You can figure out whether the organic matter came from a lake, lacustrine, or maybe it's marine algal. We can say something about the age of it, because flowering plants didn't evolve on Earth till about the end of the age of dinosaurs. So at the end of the Cretaceous, we got flowering plants. And so flowering plants create a molecule called oleanane. And so if there's no oleanane in the oil, that oil is older than Cretaceous. So now we're telling something about uh, depositional environment. We're saying something about the age. We can say, the, the, the geochemist can say something about the maturity of the oil by looking at, uh, at the geochemistry data. So all of this information uh, is now expanding what we know about what's in the subsurface. And everything we know about seepage is that it is episodic in time and it is, it is, discont- it, it is, distributed on Earth's surface, not in kind of a random scattered uh, fashion. You get seepage above, above, above a mud, mud volcano, but for the surrounding 100 square kilometers around this mud volcano, we don't find any seep targets, okay? So uh, it, our philosophy is that in order, to fi- in order to analyze the seeps, we have to go find where we've got the highest probability of seepage and leakage, and that's where we target. So if you went out and just dropped a random grid over an area, you have a very, very low chance of hitting a concentrated site of seepage. And so uh, our hit rate, our success rate is, uh, is high because we're using these biological and chemical uh, indicators of seepage to help us guide where we sample. We have very precisely located sampling instruments, this core with this acoustic beacon on it. And so we have, we have very, very high success rates. And when we get hydrocarbons, we get enough hydrocarbons that we can do all of this advanced geochemistry on it. That's a good point, Dan. Even with, uh, even without just doing a random grid of coring, um, piston coring has been done in the, the U.S. Gulf of Mexico for a long time now, and um, using seismic information um, to target it. So, like you say, looking for the faults and the anticlines and those type of features and very shallow anomalies on the on the seismic data. Um, even even guiding it with that information. Um, typically, a five percent hit rate might be expected. So, yeah. if you take two or three hundred cores um, you know you're going to get maybe five to ten percent hit rate um, where you can actually look at the oils um, and the geochemistry from the samples that you, you get using the multi-beam we were more like a 50 to 60 percent hit rate and that's even with like dan said we're targeting some features where we know we're not going to find oil um, so we could probably do even better than that if we uh, if we really focused in on finding oil but obviously we're trying to sample all the different types of seeps one of the things that we're asked and that we've heard from managers since we started working in the oil industry is what does this seafloor seep tell me about what's in my reservoir? And 
there's only uh, there have been very few uh, what we what we call the Holy Grail studies published where a company has published the geochemistry at the reservoir level and the geochemistry on a seep that they can tie to that reservoir. In the Gulf of Mexico, we collected dozens of seeps that can be tied to the same basin where there is known production. So in that Gulf of Mexico data set, a company that purchased that data and who had access to the reservoir oils could finally have a sufficient number of correlations that they could answer that question, what does the seafloor seep tell me about the reservoir? Because once you're comfortable in the Gulf of Mexico that that seep is really telling you what's down in your reservoir, now you go to other parts of the world where you don't know what's in the reservoir before you drill, and you find a good uh, fresh seep with fresh oil right at the seafloor. Now you're confident that when you go down into the reservoir that, that you're going to find something something similar. So uh, let me talk a little bit about other things that you can do with these cores. Uh, and I'll, I'll start by kind of looking at these mud volcanoes. So this mud volcano, it had overpressured mud at depth. It came up to the, to the surface of the earth. And as it came up, it grabbed wall rock on its way up. So by analyzing a mud volcano, if we then go look at, say, the microfossils uh, in all the class in a mud volcano, we can tell you about the age of the rocks that that mud volcano came through without ever drilling a well. So you can look at, at, the, at the vitronite reflectance. You can look at the maturity of, the, of these wall rocks that are brought to you on the surface. You can look at, 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 at heavy minerals. You know, when we go out and we do field geology, you know, you remember, you know, a geologist has a rock pick. They, they go, a geologist goes up to the cliff, and, and Shiri chips a rock out, and they take it back to the lab and take a look at it, and that's how they tell something about what's in the outcrop. Well, it's hard to do field geology on the bottom of the ocean. Using a multi-beam map and uh, a, uh, a USB, a um, acoustically guided core, we can now go and do field work on the, on the ocean floor and expand our knowledge of what's going on uh, in, in a field area. So maybe it's worth talking a bit, Dan, about how uh, we're jointly using these technologies or this group of technologies um, at TGS uh, to put together projects. Um, so the, I think generally the approach has been to look at um, basin-wide study areas. Um, so we're not just carving off little blocks and doing um, one of these uh, one of these projects over over a particular block. We'll take on the whole Gulf of Mexico. Um, so we we broke it up into two. We looked at the Mexico side and the U.S. side, uh, but in total, I think it was nearly a million square kilometers that we covered, and uh, about fifteen hundred cores that I think we took. Um, so. We, we're putting these packages together in different basins all over the world, whether they're either mature basins like the Gulf of Mexico or frontier areas like places we're working in in West Africa at the moment. Um, but I think we're, we're looking to put more and more of these projects together. I think the, the technology applies to uh, lots of different parts of the world, um, both this side of the Atlantic and, and, uh, and the, the eastern side of the Atlantic as well. So since 2014, five years, We've mapped, uh, uh, we, as in one in TGS, have mapped, I believe, uh, over 1,250,000 square kilometers. We've acquired over 2,000 cores. Oh, we also measure heat flow. Uh, we can, heat flow is, is how the earth is shedding heat, and, in, and it's concentrated in some areas, and, and you want to know heat flow if you're looking for oil, because you've got to know how, how much your organic matter has been cooked. So we've, we've collected thousands of cores, uh, had dramatic success rates, and we've used them 
we've used these projects in areas of, of known hydrocarbon production, like the shallow water Gulf of Mexico, but we've, we've extended out into areas of completely unknown hydrocarbon production, the deep water Gulf of Mexico, uh, 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 the east coast of Mexico over in the Caribbean. Uh, we're looking at northwest Africa, Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, and the area uh, that's uh, jointly uh, operated, AGC. Uh, and we're looking at other frontier areas where we can apply this te- this technology in concert with traditional tools, multi-channel seismic, gravity, and magnetics, to help uh, our clients get a better feel for the hydrocarbon prospectivity. Uh, you got to have the seismic because you got to see what the subsurface looks like. Uh, but the the multi beam, which leads to seep targets, which leads ultimately to the geochemistry, is what then affects the risk going forward into a basin. So. That's a good point, Dan. We don't see this as a technology that replaces seismic or, or gravity or magnetics or anything else, but it's another piece in the puzzle, um, and it's a very complementary piece as well. It is. And any areas you could argue that, the, that probably the, the best places to go look are where your colleagues and other companies have said, oh, there's no oil there. Well, how do you know? Well, we don't think there's oil because we don't think there was an organic matter or we don't think that it was cooked enough. Well, you don't know until you go there and you find... So if you found one seep in that field area that had live oil and gas in it, you would know that that premise was incorrect. And now you have a competitive edge. You have, you have knowledge that others don't, and that can, that can affect your exploration uh, uh, strategy in your portfolio. Uh, we haven't talked about cost. Multi-beam is arguably one of the least expensive tools per square kilometer in the geophysical toolkit just because we don't need chase boats. We're not towing a streamer. We're going 10 knots. We're covering a couple of thousand square kilometers a day. So it's, it's, it's a tool that's useful in frontier exploration. It is complementary to seismic. Uh, and it's a tool that, that you can use to guide where you want to spend money and how much money if you if we survey a huge area and let's say half of it has no evidence of oil and gas and half of it has excellent hydrocarbon seeps both oil and gas uh i would argue that as a company you might want to spend less money on the first and more money on the second you might not want to spend zero because there's there's always a chance and you might want to take a look at it but uh this tool is, we're, we're kind of the leading edge of, of the spear that can be used to go in and open up a new basin uh, and see whether or not there's oil, there's oil and, and gas there. Well, Erica and Duncan, thanks for having me today. Our pleasure. It's been an interesting discussing arcane subjects like bacteria, seep organisms, and seafloor mapping and multi-beam and tying it all back into oil and gas exploration. I want to take a minute to thank TGS for this podcast and for uh, their collaboration and support over the years. Uh, and I, I should mention that we, we've been acquiring this seafloor mapping data with uh, companies like Fugro and TDI Brooks with equipment uh, designed by Kongsberg. I want to thank my partners in one, uh, John Decker and Phil Tease. And on the geochemistry side, I, I've got to give a nod to Bernie Bernard for uh, patiently answering my questions, and our colleagues over at Geomark for the biomarker work. For biology, Chuck Fisher has, uh, again, patiently answered all of my questions about how seep, seeps work. And for paleo seeps, Kathy Campbell. 
And I do want to thank uh, the U.S. Navy's Office of Naval Research for decades of sponsoring this type of work uh, and, and allowing us as a, as a kind of an academic community to take these really, uh, again, arcane science issues, but then uh, to take them and apply them to uh, the really exciting work of oil and gas exploration. Thanks for coming by, Dan. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. It's been a great conversation. And who knows where we're going to map next. <laughs>